amazing client base, amazing business. I couldn't get over it and I still can't get over the client base of these firms and, and the ability to, to deal with them and, and interact with them and it's such an international profession. I've loved the international nature of the profession from, from day one and whether you're in Munich or London or Tokyo and uh, or, or Washington or Chicago and the people you can meet around this profession and the international nature of it and the client base, I think it's fantastic. I've never had a day but I haven't really enjoyed coming to work. That's my guest on today's show, Andrew Blattman. Andrew is the CEO and Managing Director of IPH, an international IP services group that includes leading IP firms AJ Park, Griffith Hack, Pizzies, Smart and & Bigger, and Sprucin and & Ferguson. We discuss Andrew's introduction to the IP profession and his nearly 30 years of experience in the industry, having joined Sprucin & Ferguson in 1995. Andrew talks about his storied career journey, including his role as principal and CEO of Sprucin & Ferguson and being appointed CEO and managing director of IPH following the incorporation and listing on the ASX in 2014. I'm your host, Justin Simpson. I'm an Australian patent attorney and founder of Bill Trader. Welcome to Talking IP, a podcast for IP professionals featuring conversations that take you inside the professional lives and careers of global IP leaders and entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy the show. Andrew Blattman, welcome to Talking IP. Oh, thanks very much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, you're you're in Sydney today. I see a nice uh, background there. Yes, no, we're down in Darling Park in uh, in Sydney, which we moved to five or six years ago when I became CEO of IPH. We moved down out of St Martin's Tower, which is also in the centre of Sydney. So new newish premises for us, but uh, in in a good venue. Looks like a great spot. I remember you and I had lunch a couple of years ago and you reminded me that the first time we met was the Patent Attorney Institute lunch when we were both becoming patent attorneys for the first time. Oh, you've got a good memory, Justin. Yes, I think we qualified in the same year in, I mean, it must have been 1998. I think it was 1998, 25 years ago. So, uh... Yeah, time has been much kinder to you than me, which is, uh, <laughs> which is good for you. Very, very kind. Well, we've both gone on quite different paths throughout our career. Uh, I've kind of gone more entrepreneurial and out of the traditional industry, and you've risen through the ranks of a, a very impressive firm. So I thought we'd start at the beginning. When we met back 25 years ago, were you already at Sprucens? And how did you get into the IP industry in the first place? Yeah, oh, that's a good question, Justin. I've, I've always been at Sprucens until uh, I moved into IPH, I guess, but in, in a broader family. And, and how I found out about IP probably started during my PhD, uh, which I did at CSIRO, Division of Animal Health, which used to be attached to Sydney University years ago. Uh, and there were some early discussions around IP there, but not much. And I did a postdoctoral fellowship in the early 90s at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And we had our own invention there and part of a team. And I met a patent attorney um, with the Wisconsin kind of commercialization tech transfer office, they brought in a patent attorney to visit with us. And this chap seemed to know more about my invention than I did. And I thought that was <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> Who is this person? Uh, and it started me down a path of at least thinking about it. I, I thought I'd leave the bench uh, in terms of bench science. I didn't think I had a long future there. Uh, and uh, I thought I'll do something else. I was thinking about management consultancy and all these other funny things in a graduate kind of scheme, even though I just finished my PhD and went into a postdoctoral fellowship. But I thought, oh, I like science and, and uh, I like to stay in science. And, and then being introduced to the patent, I thought, well, maybe this is a career for me. And 
then I saw an advertisement for a patent attorney at Spruceton and Ferguson, well, actually for a molecular biologist that it was then, looking for a molecular biologist at Spruceton and Ferguson. I never heard of Spruceton's, but I, I knew what a molecular <laughs> biologist was. So I applied for that, and uh, one of the Spruceton's partners happened to be coming through the US on a marketing trip, I assume he was, in, in probably 1994. And uh, I, I joined uh, him at the, the airport for an interview over a couple of cups of coffee and, and started started the firm in, must have been mid-1995. Well, that, that's a very interesting path. You, you've done lots and lots of studies. You haven't even known what a patent attorney is like until you've, you've already done your doctorate. This It's kind of quite typical, I think, the patent attorney industry is hard to find. I, I think that's right. It's it's something that most people fall into. Uh, there was one chap who worked for us in our China office out of Germany who, who knew he wanted to be a patent attorney from high school. It's the only person I know which had this as a career path from uh, early stage where the rest of us seem to fall into it. Um, it's been my uh, common experience with, with colleagues. I was the same. I was halfway through computer science and law and I uh, thought, well, what, what do I do with science and law? And uh, I found that patent attorneys had both elements in it and uh, and uh, it really suited me. No, agree, agree totally. So with your uh, molecular biology background, it was something in agriculture. Were you a country boy before that? I was from yeah, an old dairy farming area outside of Sydney, which is no longer dairy farming, but it was, and my parents were on on, on that kind of a life. And so I, I, I started down that path from a formative position, uh, although I've never actually, well, I, I used to be on the milking cows early on in my life, but not, not, not for a long time, But uh, uh, and I won't be doing it again anytime soon in, in that context, <laughs> but um, uh, I did enjoy that aspect, and that was, I guess, a formative approach to where I ended up with my uh, science focus, but um, it was a long time ago now. What I've, I've noticed amongst the patent attorneys who are in the biotech space is Almost all of them have PhDs, as if you have to have that. Whereas I, I've only got a lowly bachelor of uh, bachelor of science. Why? Do, why is it that you need that level of learning to to do patents at the in the biology space? Do you need it? Look, you, I'm sure you do need it, but I think there's an expectation that you have it. Probably based on the fact that most of the people you're talking with and, and interacting with are also similar qualification. It certainly gives clients comfort that uh, you understand the technology being discussed and, and particularly in the context of local clients, gives the inventor comfort. And certainly for large corporate clients, also there's an expectation that you understand the technology intimately and, and with that comes that level of qualification to do that. I, I'm not sure it's necessary, but to a certain extent expected. Certainly impressive. And then you, you then went on and spent a couple of years uh, learning how to be a patent attorney on top of that. So uh, uh, plenty of studies uh, under your belt. Yeah, it was a different time. And uh, as you'll recall, trying to pass those exams um, in the early 90s before the universities really got hold of them. And uh, I'm not sure if it, if it was quite this way, but it's almost seemed like the number of people passing each year matched the number of people retiring. But I'm sure that wasn't the case, uh, Justin. <laughs> but it was a, it was a harder path. Uh, well, it was a more convoluted path anyway. And I do remember, I'm sure you do too, we'd have these, um, we'd go to the Telstra office or something in, in the city and have these contravision tutorials where it was so difficult to actually connect with people in Melbourne who were giving the tutorials. And all I can remember is um, in March, the, the syllabus would come out in the official journal saying these are the subjects to, to, to study and then see you in October and good luck. Uh, which was essentially <laughs> the extent of the preparation for, for the exams. But anyway, we all got there in the end. 
I remember, yep, just having to do it on my own. I think my first patent attorney job, just uh, the the boss said, here's some old files from a guy who knew what he was doing. Read them and learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we made it. You made it through. So you started at Spruceton and Ferguson. I'm assuming you moved back to Australia at some point. You've been there for 25 years, obviously now in the IPH group. But what has it been about Spruceton and Ferguson that's kept you there for so long? Oh, look, I've, I've really loved it from day one. It was extraordinary when I first arrived here. I thought the, the people I was surrounded with, the other professionals were highly qualified and uh, the clients were amazing, Justin. The client base was just incredible. The most wonderful international corporate clients, names you would know readily and, and the instructions would come in every morning. It was just an amazing client base, amazing business. I couldn't get over it and... and I still can't get over the client base of these firms and, and the ability to, to deal with them and, and interact with them in such an international profession. I've loved the international nature of the profession from, from day one. And whether you're in Munich or London or Tokyo and uh, or, or Washington or Chicago and the people you can meet around this profession and the international nature of it and the client base, I think it's fantastic. I've never had a day... I haven't really enjoyed coming to work. There have been some tough days, of course, but at the end of the day, it's still it's still a pretty good profession. Well, it's a, I've, I've always admired uh, Spruce and Ferguson, a wonderful reputation and still going strong. I know it's only one element of the IPH group now, but uh, I did hear a rumour that part of the reason for the wonderful client base was that in the 60s, some guy did a six-week tour around America and just shook everyone's hands and then... That was the only firm that anyone knew of uh, back then. Is that a, is that true, or is it? Oh, I think there's probably some truth to it. it might even be in the fifties, actually, uh, Justin. I think there was um, uh, in the old days. It might have been travel by ship and uh, a three or six month uh, business development trip around um, Europe and the US. And yes, uh, I think that was very much part of it. And and even then, there was some in the US. There were some associate firms. You might remember some of these names who early on in the piece almost specialised in foreign filings and, and the other attorney firms would give them their foreign filings. They didn't want to do them and didn't want to deal with their foreign associates and, and these firms, either New York or Chicago, would send out all this work and it was extraordinary. Um, and now the nature of businesses have changed. Of course, we all have relationships individually with associates, but back then it was it was almost funneled through one or two firms in the US and then, there were, of course, there were the direct corporate clients who were the most amazing companies in in corporate America and corporate Europe, and we were lucky to get them. That's a that's a great client base, and uh, travelling across the world in the fifties is a, was a probably a bold move, and probably disapproved of by some of the other partners. But uh, in the end, it was a it was a it was a great result. Well, no, it was good, and and I think it must have been a gentle a gentler time back then, because as, as I understand it, and this could be uh, grown in, in in legend, and may not have happened, but because a particular partner who used to go off for these six month trips, he said, oh. It's been, I've been so busy, I have three weeks in Hawaii on the way home. So gentler times, I think, than justice. <laughs> those billable hours weren't, uh, weren't knocking on his door. We weren't worried about those. So talking about clients and obviously uh, uh, some really good relationships with very big, impressive uh, companies. A lot of the people I've talked to, I ask about sort of smaller companies and ones that they've helped sort of from the very beginning. Are there, are there some smaller companies you could, you could name where you've helped them protect their um, uh, inventions and seen their success? Yeah, I guess in, in my career, when I first joined Sprucens, we didn't have a lot of local clients, and particularly in my field. It wasn't well, it wasn't a field that really was any specialty at all in, and that's what, I guess why they were looking for a molecular biologist at the time. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I spent a lot of time with 
public sector research organisations, a lot of a lot of tech transfer groups with, and the universities in, in New South Wales or, or Sydney and uh, ANU, and, and then we had the CRC programs of the from the mid nineties onwards, which are still kind of going along, and kind of uh, in some ways led the Spruce and um, team in in that context of uh, public sector research, and which is a different nature of business and a different margin of business. But at the end of the day, and I still see it now in the businesses. To get good patent attorneys, you've really got to be able to do that local work in order to prosecute the international work. If you can't draft a claim, you probably shouldn't be amending it. So it's a it's a formative experience, and uh, I always support it. So I mean, that's what I enjoyed. I love the corporate clients, international clients, of course, and I knew the, the profitable nature of them. But um, the the experience and the relationship with the tech transfer groups and and the Startups. Often, the patent attorney had more more corporate history of these inventions in this technology than almost the inventor, because there'd be a bit of change in the tech transfer offices. But the constancy was always the patent attorney who knew a lot about the technology and a lot about the invention and the commercial path of it. So, you became very close to that uh, success or otherwise of the uh, of the technology, and I enjoyed that. It's certainly uh, true, I think, and that's probably why um, international patent relationships are so strong. When you get to know a particular technology and you've, you've got a, someone, a professional overseas, who's used to dealing with your technology, you don't want to switch those around. Uh, true, and, and you, you know, no matter what we do, we always have to act in the best interest of the client, and, and uh, you need to find someone who can support that, whether it's in Australia or, or, or in the US or, or Japan, and that's, that's our obligation. Let's uh, let's continue on. I'm going to skip forward a few years, uh, 20 years along, and we're approaching the point at which uh, IPH decides to list. I know David Griffiths in the helm. I don't know don't know what position you were in and and how much you were involved in the discussions of thinking about listing. What what was the thinking uh, at that time? As you, uh, what were the ideas? It was an interesting time. Of course, we had the raising the bar uh, amendments to the Patents Act, which I think was in 2013, which is ostensibly directed to improving the presumption of validity of Australian patents around the uh, inventive step, as you recall. You might have you might have been doing bigger things by then, uh, Justin, but I remember that was the, the thrust of the amendment. Uh, but there's also a few... The, the Patents Act doesn't get amended that often, as you know, so I think they've saved up a few other amendments to, to, to go with the raising the bar, including corporatisation uh, of a patent attorney practice. So that occurred, I think, in April 2013, and then that gave us a pathway, at least, to corporatise the practice and then with the ultimate gain, if we could list it, to list it. And certainly, it was no question it was David's vision. Uh, we all had to get behind it. And we were lucky, I guess, in many ways, we had a good business domestically. But we also had a, uh, a very strong growing business in Southeast Asia. And in terms of my role in that, I've been a director of the Southeast Asian business since 2001 uh, and been very intimately involved in that. And that, that, the rest of the profession really didn't know what we were doing in, in Singapore. And to a certain, it wasn't that transparent as it is now. And uh, we didn't talk about it much because we knew it was pretty good. We, we, some of our competitors were opening offices in Geelong and we thought it was better to open one in Malaysia or Singapore or elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Uh, that was very good to us, so I was involved in that. I must have gone up to Singapore sometimes every six weeks or so for uh, active management and meetings with the people on the ground there. So that was how I got involved, I guess, at that level of management. But really, in the context of the listing, we all had to be involved. There were 20, 
20 trustees of the unit trust. It wasn't a partnership, it was a unit trust, which similar to what a number of other firms operated on in Australia back then. And uh, we had to get together and <laughs> come to an agreement around the table. So it took a while, as you know, these uh, these groups, any group of people, it's hard to get agreement. Um, uh, but we got there in the end. That was a lot due to David's ability to um, uh, get us together on that. And that was, that was as I say, it was his vision, but we had to make it happen. And then uh, that was that was a bit of fun. I'd had the impression that sort of the Asia strategy uh, was was happened after the listing, but it's been going on since 2001. Clearly, yeah, uh... no, we, we opened the office there in 1997, actually, um, when the Singapore Patents Act came to effect. Uh, before then, there was a re-registration of UK patents, which you may or may not remember, because it wasn't really a high on anyone's agenda. Then the, the, the Singapore Patents Act came into effect, and we thought this is a great opportunity to get up there and, and take some real estate in, in terms of opening an office and... We struggled for a little while to, to man the office and then uh, we had a few foundation clients that were Australian clients of Spruce and of Bergeson that came with us uh, and that was great. So they underpinned the office and then uh, we got some more traction as time went on and, and then we formed a joint venture with a smaller, well, no, we weren't a small firm, they were a, a local firm there, but they didn't have any real patent experience other than we well, didn't really need, I guess, in the context because you you weren't uh, prosecuting patents other than re-registering them. And when that changed, they knew they needed some patent attorneys and we knew we needed some scale. So we formed that joint venture in 2001, uh, which tootled along for a while. And then in 2012, I think, we bought out the joint venture partners by that stage. It was just owned by Spruce and Bergs. Was that the Ella Chong one, if I recall? Yes, Ella Chong. Yeah. Ella Chong. First, it was Ella Chong, Miranda, and Spruce, and then it became Ella Chong and Spruce and Ferguson for about 10 years. And then we, we bought Ella out. It was 2012, if I remember. You know, your memory's going well. And uh, and uh, you, you talk about the, you wanting to be the leader in secondary markets. What do you, what do you mean by that? And, and what's behind that strategy? Yeah, I guess, how do you explain a secondary market? Probably best to explain it with reference to what a primary market is. And in my view, Primary markets are where technology comes from, and because uh, where technology comes from, patents are, of course, underpinning it. And there's only about four regions in the world that really produce most of the world's technology. That's the US, Western Europe, South Korea, Japan, oh, and more recently, increasingly out of China. And the rest of the world receives technology. Like Australia, I think we filed 36, 37,000 patent applications, and there's probably you know, less than 5,000 of those are by Australian residents. So we most of our cases are coming in from um, the US or Western Europe. So we like that space in Asia or Southeast Asia, ex-Japan, Australia, New Zealand. I think that's all in, in the secondary market space for us. And um, so we like that space and we like to drive a network around it in, in our ways. And we offer services to make it easy for client to file in multiple jurisdictions simultaneously through our network. And that's how we drive value there. Having uh, one point of contact to file in multiple jurisdictions reminds me of Anovia, but uh, you're not copying me. You're... <laughs> that's, that's a good business model. So uh, as Smart and Bigger uh, recently in Canada, that's a that's a wonderful uh, big acquisition. Congratulations on that. That must have been a long time in the making to get uh, that name on board. Uh, it was difficult in in that we started doing it. Um, I started having conversation with some of the partners there towards the end of 2019. So. Uh, just as we're getting ahead of steam, we went into COVID in 2020, which uh, was hard to uh, to continue that on because one, one, we couldn't travel, and two, people didn't know what their business was going to look like in most of 2020 and, and into 21. But we picked it up again in 21, and 
there was a large transaction in the context of the number of partners in that business and uh, there were some annuity partners and there were a whole lot of different stakeholders there and we couldn't travel, as you know, until well, maybe it was November or September and October 21 and, and uh, so we really was doing a lot of these things on, on Zoom and Teams and all those other things, which was fine but not difficult to do a transaction on. Uh, and difficult to present to you know, multiple partners um, in, a, in a way that uh, is compelling to them. So we picked it up again and, and pushed through on in 22 and did the deal in 22. Well, that's a, a great name to have on, on, the, on the list. And uh, probably, as we had uh, Ed Murgatroyd on the show the other day, uh, they were sort of the first of listings and IPH, certainly the second. I guess um, Martin Bigger becoming part of the group is the first Canadian firm to be part of a listed entity. Would that be right? That's correct, uh, Justin. Look, that's a, it's a wonderful marquee brand, Martin Bigger. It's a great name, Martin Bigger. It is, it is. <laughs> so we're, we're happy to have them on board for a number of reasons, but the quality of their client base and their professionals is excellent. It's a name that anyone in the patent profession knows well. For me, it's it's like another Spruce and a Ferguson or Griffith Hack and AJ Park. They're all great brands uh, that we've had on board for a number of years, including even Pizzies that were well known to you. Um, so we're lucky. We like getting the number one player in a, in a, in a jurisdiction. We like to take a, a, a foothold that's substantial. The, the amount of work involved in doing a small deal or a big deal is pretty much the same. Uh, and you've got a, a um, number one player. You know you're buying quality. And I don't buy, mind buying quality. I don't mind buying good earnings uh, of, of a business of that nature because it's, it's, it's enduring and it's uh, multi-generational, as most of these firms are. A lot of the firms in our stable and brands well over 100 years of heritage. It's amazing. It's a, the great brands and Smart and Bigger is, is a really great example of them. Now, I don't know if I can ask you about uh, what's coming uh, What's coming next. Uh, you're liking these secondary markets. You've, you've got Canada. You've done, well, after listing Australia, you've snapped up all that were probably willing and, and worthwhile buying. Uh, are you running out of countries? Oh no, I don't, I don't think so. I think we 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 still think there's good uh, runway in, in Canada. We've got about a fifteen percent market share, maybe sixteen percent market share there in terms of patent filings and smart and bigger. Uh, we can probably take that a little bit more. Should we find some uh, people who want to join the team? Uh, and there's other secondary markets that we like. I've talked about South South America in the past. You know, there's the African states and places like that we like. And of course, you know, when you get a business of our size, continues to have these good recurrent earnings, and uh, the nature of what we do is 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 so predictable in many ways that it underpins our ability to do something broader as well. And I, I like the adjacent space, whether it's in patent renewals or the ecosystem of IP that uh, in software and, and bases like that, which we could bring our business to now. There are bigger opportunities, and something a lot of them are owned by private equity their opportunities, which will a fair bit to chew on. But as we get bigger, we can, we can probably do that. And that's something that we'll have a look at too into the future. When, I'm not sure, but it depends on how I can continue to grow the, the broader business in the traditional markets. So there'll be some along the lines of the traditional IP attorney firms, but maybe some adjacencies are coming up. Absolutely. Now that you've got it, one, yeah. If you need an outside consultant on some firms, I'm happy to uh, happy to give my opinion. <laughs> well, you know them. You've given, and maybe you would know every firm in the world, I'm sure. Pretty much, pretty much. 
Now, in terms of uh, one thing we were talking with uh, Ed Murgatroyd about the other day was when it went from being a partnership to a, a listed entity, there was sort of a, you've got different bosses. Uh, as a partnership, it's, well, trying to make agreement with all the men and women around the table, but you've then got your investors in the listed space. You've got mums and dad investors. How did you find going from leading or being involved in the leadership of a firm at the partnership level to being a listed entity? What were the changes for you? Oh, that's a good question. And there are multiple changes in terms of the number of stakeholders. You have different stakeholders, of course. But ultimately, the three or the three stakeholders we look at, are, of course, our clients and our people and, and our investors but or our shareholders. But um, it really, if you look after the clients and our people, it normally looks after the shareholders as well, seems to be my, my experience. And in terms of clarity of thought and uh, ability to implement strategy, the corporate model is easier, I think. And, yeah, once you've got a strategy that you've talked about with your board, and um, we have a board, a great board of directors at IPH, you know, it's a really a blue chip board and we're lucky to have it. We've got the chairman of the AICD, John Atkins been on the board for a number of years, all, all since inception. Robin Lowe, a wonderful audit partner, ex-PWC, has been an audit chair for a long time, and some new people from Vicky Carter and, and Jingming Chin that's come on board in recent years. And, of course, now we've got the um, the ex-chair of Macquarie Group, Peter Warren, that's come on to, as the chair of IPH. So once the strategy is determined, and these guys, they're pretty good, so we, we get a good strategy position with them and feedback from them, and then it's up to us to, as the executive to implement it. So I think it's easier to implement um, corporate model. That That's certainly, uh, in my comparison to the partnership, with it's harder to get consensus in, around the table of, the, <laughs> of peers, as you know. And the fact that you've got some capital to, to add to whether it's your IT resources or, or whether it's to dealing with staff and incentivizing staff and, and, and giving an outcome for staff. And uh, in, in the new world we live in too with uh, ESG requirements and, and our people want us to be able to contribute to matters of whether it's environmental and social and governance issues and we can do that. Uh, and it gives a good buy-in for our staff. So uh, all in all, I think that the corporate model has been it's had some transition, but I, th- I think it's an easier model for us. Well, it sounds like you've got a good board there and a good relationship, and I think that that's key to getting any decision done and, and action being taken. Now, let's talk a little bit about, uh, so in the old partnership model, I guess, a young person coming into the profession, their goal was to become a partner at the end, and that was what the uh, career succession was. How have you managed to incentivize people as, as to where their future career is going without the partnership model? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's one that we think about a lot because I, I I know that the traditional model because I, I lived it like you, you would have done, and and but really the reality of the traditional model, um, the ambition may not always match in, in the mature <laughs> market like Australia where there's very little growth. The ability to to move to the corner office on profit share is a much longer period than what it was when you and I started on this path, and. Uh, uh, whether you get there at all, it, um, it, it's not sure. So look, we had to replace that and we do it in a way with good salaries and performance-based remuneration and ownership through IPH shares, essentially. Because the share price in IPH has done reasonably well over the years, it goes up and down, of course it does, but generally the, the long-term trajectory is good. So the, the capital outcome for those guys, the shareholders, has been good. Um, we have a liquid stock that people can sell if they want to sell it gives a pretty good dividend. So actually, it achieves an ownership feeling and and, and outcome 
uh, in a similar way to what profit share scenario would. So we, we're very cognizant of that, and, and we do our best to uh, re- replace that opportunity with through our, our REM structure. Hmm. And that that partial ownership, I guess, is uh, enjoyed by paralegals, the other other support staff, not just the partners. Partner quality, broader opportunity, and, and people can trade within trading windows, and they can also it's an asset that's uh, it's theirs, and which is recognised by other financial institutions as well. So it, it's 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 a useful asset to have. Okay, so they could don't know, not borrow against the mortgage, but at least it's a real asset. It's not uh, like shares in a private company. I, I can't go to the bank and no, you can't do much of your shares in a private patent attorney business. That's right. That's right. Money on paper, not in, on real life. Now, now there was a in- interesting uh, series of events a few years ago when uh, the Zenith Group, uh, the Griffith Hack Shelston entity, was thinking about merging with Quantum Group DCC, and and that all looked like it was they were about to get married, and then uh, uh, IPH uh, stepped in and 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 broke up the relationship and and made, changed the course. How what, what was that like for you? Oh, it was quite extraordinary times, uh, Justin. It was um, you know, suddenly we're becoming these corporate players in in, in the Australian patent attorney profession. As you say, we when we listed, we had uh, two other peers follow us. First, uh, the Zenith Group a year later, and then the Quantum Group a year after that. So there were three peers um, on the on the listing. And as you said earlier, Murgatroyd was the first, of course, on the A market in the UK. But there were three of us sitting on the ASX. Um, we had tried to buy Quantum a little bit earlier, and we were rejected on that, uh, which we thought was a pretty good uh, offering. But Anyway, we didn't get there with that, and then uh, unbeknownst to me, of course, there was probably the reason why we didn't was because of the um, the merger discussions that they were having with the, between Quantum and Zenith as it was then. Now, for me, I, I didn't think it was a good outcome for us all, for the uh, yeah, our shareholders, to for that group to get together, and uh, and the only one I could actually impact on the deal was Zenith. I didn't have an opportunity to deal with the Quantum Group at that at that point. But Zenith was uh, was uh, available, and that's why we we took a stake in in that um, 19.9 percent stake. I think it was in February or March uh, of 2019. I think it might have been. We did a few negotiations and came to a scheme of arrangement where we ended up um, the shareholders voted of the Zenith Group voted in favour of us acquiring that business. So it was quite a a, a different process to what uh, an old patent attorney from Spruce and the <laughs> had been involved in the, in the past, but it was very exciting. And, and look, I, I'm, I'm pleased with the outcome. We've got a wonderful group of people and great clients. And um, really the, the brand, which has continued from that, has been the Groove Pack brand, which is well known to you and to uh, your listeners, I'm sure. And um, you know, we did a bit of integration of some other brands along the way, of course, which was well known. But the Griffith Hack brand has been strengthened and emboldened, and um, it's in good shape. Mm. And, and I think they couple very well with the the Sprucens, uh, largely incoming work from overseas. Uh, Griffith Hack had the largest local uh, client base, I believe. Yeah, and the good uh, good exposure across the country in terms of network of offices, good professionals, and the good client base. I wouldn't have thought of the idea of of taking a well, we'll call it a blocking stake. Was this your idea, or did the bankers say, "Look, this is what we should do"? Or how did that idea come come about? We have lots of friends uh, in this corporate world, Justin, and we've been well advised by people throughout the course of uh, our, our listing process and beyond. We had some capital markets advisors when we first listed back in 2014, and. Um, some have been with us ever since, uh, and we're on board to help us there. At the end of the day, though, we have to write the check, and it's something that comes out of the uh, with the with the blessing of the board, of course, of IPH. So we have to put that position to IPH's board, 
with and seek their recommendation and approval and then once we get it it, it's up to us to implement so that's how it played and uh, it was quite an interesting time very interesting i'm sure you had uh, plenty of late nights and early mornings getting through that period yes yeah anyway we got there in the end so now uh, it's a few years on now how is the the process of integrating all of these different brands into the ipH uh, gone how far are you along along that integration path oh I think we've we've done most of it in the context of uh, domestic uh, brands in in um, Australia and New Zealand uh, the integration process we did well we did, did the acquisition of Zenith, which gave us uh, brands of Griffith Hague, Shelston and Watermark as you'll recall uh, and we've integrated Shelston and the Spruce since most recent most recently and of course uh, Watermark went to the Griffith Hague. at the same or similar time we also acquired the business of Baldwin's in um, in New Zealand which is a well-known firm there probably was a little bit subscale at the time and when we when we did acquire it and we put that business into uh, AJ Park, which is a clear market leader in, in New Zealand. And that's a process we've done there. We've also some of the early acquisitions we did before my time as CEO, but under David's uh, direction, the early brands of Fisher Amsterdam, Kelly, Cullens, Calamans and others of that nature have gone into I think generally into Spruce and Ferguson. So We've probably have reduced a number of brands, but um, we've probably strengthened the, the, the broader brands as a consequence. Mm. And uh, hopefully a lot of the clients are still with you and have, have come into the new brands. Have you had uh, much drop-off? or, or uh... Well, you look, you, you always see some um, you know, legal conflict, with, which is not much in this industry, as you know. We don't have a lot of opposition to litigation in Australia or any secondary markets. Most of it occurs in the primary markets. So we have a bit of loss there, but not much. And then we have commercial conflict where two players in the in in the one industry it might be like a Coca-Cola, Pepsi type scenario where they may not be comfortable acting on the one brand. We might lose a client through commercial conflict, and that has happened. But we we know that's going to happen in, in in advance. We make a decision whether the synergies outweigh the dissynergies in that context. Generally, you know, we wouldn't proceed otherwise. Mm. Now I'm I'm a technology person. I like my computer software. When you when you're integrating three or four firms and they've got the different systems and different technologies, do you tend to leave them as they are and and just have a conduit between them, or do you try and shift them across to the the majority? Yeah, we try to uh, in time shift them across to the systems under IPH. Uh, and look, most of the acquisitions we've done to date uh, have all nearly all of them operated under the Inpratec uh, case management system as it was then. Uh, and uh, we've been able to uh, bring them together, and, and and with the strength of the network, essentially the the the, the common um, service lines of, that we have at IPH. So all the all the corporate service lines, whether it's IT, HR, finance, legal, business development, are all centralised into into IPH. So ability to do one thing and apply it many times is is key to us, and that that's part of the ability to run an efficient business. So that, that's what we do there. And we've got some good synergies out of being able to have the systems of Inprotect and the overlay of Inprotect and from a case management aspect that we can leverage across the, the, the integrated brands. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, using the using the centralised uh, infrastructure and uh, cutting down costs uh, wherever you can. Absolutely. Now, I do have a, a sensitive topic to ask you about, and I apologize for asking you, but uh, you're a publicly listed company, so uh, you can't hide it behind anything. But uh, there was a cybersecurity incident. No doubt that was uh, very stressful. Uh, how did you manage through that uh, process? 
Well, no, it was stressful, but uh, look, uh, we managed it because we had a plan, um, Justin, and it's one of the beauties of having a corporate model uh, is that we had the resources to have a plan. So we were able, and we had a great team of in our IT group, uh, CIO, a guy called T Tan's an excellent player, and um, he was able to react very quickly. We we sensed that there was a, a, a breach, and we were able to bring it down. The systems were, were brought down, and very quickly and uh, to isolate and eradicate the, the threat out of the business. We moved to a business continuity plan immediately and restore with a, uh, a rebuild. And so we we had a cyber security, a cyber incident plan, and they were able to. Uh, to move into that immediately. And, and that's, I guess, one of the strengths of being a, a corporate business that we could plan, we were able to respond to it in that way. So that was in many ways, no one wants to go through these things, but a lot of people do go through them uh, more than you think. And of course we are, as we are, as you say, a public company, we have to, we have to disclose uh, every aspect of it, which we did. Yeah, well, I think we've made three uh, announcements around that incident. But I was pleased with the ability to react so quickly and, and comprehensively. Uh, there's clarity around the impact of it, which I've indicated in the most recent announcement. I think we're, we'll, we'll, we'll go forward to probably a stronger group than ever as a consequence of it. Well, it sounds like you, you handled it well, and uh, we don't wish this upon anyone. Uh, and you're, you're probably right that many more people have experienced it, but they're not listed and so haven't, haven't uh, gone through it. Do you have any advice for uh, fellow IP firms around the world in relation to such uh, an incident? Well, I, I think if we didn't, if we weren't planned and didn't have the cyber response plan in place, it would have been a very different different outcome for us. Everyone needs to think about the, the possibility of it, and uh, even one of the third party groups that we were using referred to uh, having a hundred of these events a month. I mean, internationally, so it's just extraordinarily common, and it's something that, um, and whilst no one wants to go through it, there's a, a probability you will, uh, and if you're not prepared, you'll be scrambling, I can assure you, because um, you, yeah, in the heat of the battle, unless you have a strategy, you could be very missed. Having a clear cybersecurity plan sounds uh, like very good advice. So I'll uh, everyone, everyone listening, get one in place if you haven't got one already. What's what's coming up in the future? I want to hear about what's coming up in the future for IPH and for you personally. Are you you planning on living, uh, working until you're 85, or uh, have you got uh, somewhere to, to head into the countryside in in 10 years' time? What's what's your personal plan? Uh, well, look, I'm always here at the grace and favour of the board of, of, of IPH, uh, just as you know, as a CEO, but. I love it. I, I can't believe how lucky I've been in my career. It's um, I've fallen into one of the best businesses in Australia joining Spruce without any knowledge of who Spruce was, really. I just got lucky. Sometimes you think about it, you have a few people approach you about changing and you think, oh, that's very flattering. And thank goodness I never did. I stayed where I was and continued on. And then the guy, I, as I said, I've never had a really bad day at the office. I mean, some days are harder than others, but when you think about the opportunities you have and the international nature, I just I just still find it fascinating. And the fact that I've had to, I guess, transition in a way from professional practice in, into this new role has given me another challenge, which will uh, give me more energy. Actually, it makes me it's it's learn a new language, like a bit like you've done as well, I guess, in, from your entrepreneurial bent. For me to learn a new language of the public markets and and. Uh, exercise the capital we have available to us and 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 understand the responsibility of the capital markets that comes with this position has given me a whole new lease of life on my professional life and I, I don't particularly want to go anywhere yet. I've got a lot of unpicked business, <laughs> Justin, so hopefully I'll get a chance to do it. Uh, well, Andrew, congratulations on your career thus far. Uh, you've uh, done extremely well. I wish you very well for the future and really appreciate you being part of Talking IP. 
Oh, good on you, Justin. It was a pleasure to be part of it. Thanks very much. See you soon. Bye. Well, that's it for our latest episode of Talking IP. And thanks to my guest, Andrew Blattman. Thank you for joining us. And please reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn, where we'll share updates on the release of each episode. Talking IP is brought to you by Bill Trader, a fintech solution for IP firms designed to solve the cost and efficiency challenges of making and receiving payments to and from your foreign agents. To learn more, visit BillTrader.com.